0: Um, Okay, well, we're going to spend some time in the Scripture this morning, and so uh, you need two things. You need a Bible, uh, and you need a little piece of paper that perhaps you got. Brian will wave it in the air so you can see. If you need either of those things, raise your hand, and Owen is going to come and save the day. So if you need either a piece of paper or a Bible, uh, that'd be great. Uh, Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 is where we're going to be today, and while you're flipping there... um, couple things. Uh, We mentioned, or you may have seen the announcement, that we are starting Sunday school back up this morning. We took a little break for the holidays, but we are uh, back going today. And so uh, we have two classes that we're offering, and these are going to be short four-week classes because in February we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, But for the rest of January, there's going to be two classes. One of them is going to be on money, and Joel Tasman is going to be teaching it right here in the auditorium, and then Jake Rogers will be in Kava Corner teaching a class on Exodus, the kind of the beginning uh, events of the book of Exodus, and of course our college and career will be in here, <laughs> and our youth group will be in the hub. So if you're not in the habit of staying for Sunday school, this would be a great way to kind of get your feet wet and see what it's like. It's just going to be four weeks, so if you can commit to that, that would be awesome. And then, like we said, starting in February, we're going to do something a little bit different that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, and second of all, on Saturday, we had our membership class, which was great. We had uh, nine prospective members. So far, they seem like they're, they're all going to be okay in our first <laughs> session. Um, We're having our second session this Saturday, but I know that there's some of you, and I think I've heard from a few different groups of people uh, who wanted to come, but they weren't able to make it yesterday. So what we're going to be doing uh, is I want to invite anybody who still is interested in being a member to come to session two on Saturday, and then the following week, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do session one again. So if you're interested in being a member and you couldn't make it last week, come on Saturday at 9 o'clock. We'll do session two, and then we'll do session one um, later on, okay? Uh, Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, jump into the scripture. God, as we come to your word this morning, um, we do so with anticipation and expectation. Uh, We do so affirming that these words are powerful, and that when we uh, seek to learn And to read and to apply, uh, they can radically change our lives and our world. And so we pray that as we open your scriptures this morning, you speak to us in a way uh, that only you can. In your name, all God's people said, amen. Okay, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, but let's do a little bit of historical background. Um, We're talking about disruption. Last week, we introduced this concept that sometimes when you follow the way of God, you are disruptive to the culture around you. And so we looked uh, at some of the writings of Paul as he challenged us to be people who uh, understand that when we live the way of God, uh, our lives are disruptive, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a way that's uh, a little bit uh, hard on the culture. And so we're going to look at what uh, that actually looks like this morning. We're going to look at a guy named Elijah who is one of the premier disruptors in the Bible. We're going to look at some important events in his life, but let's kind of put it in context. Uh, The story is going to take place here um, in this area. This is where most of the Old Testament takes place. This is the modern country. So you may have heard about some of these places in the news recently. Uh, Here or there, but this is where the Bible, uh, most of the story of the Bible, takes place. And so when we take our maps away uh, and we zoom in here, this is really the the main area where all of these things are going to take place. And Elijah uh, lived in the 8th century BC. So this is like probably around the year 770 or so BC. So about 700, 800 years before the time of Jesus is when this story is taking place. Um, This was a really critical time. Uh, for the people of Israel, the people of God as a whole. As some of you may be aware, um, the the kingdom of Israel, which was once this more or less uh, united uh, group of people led by people like uh, Saul and David and Solomon, uh, had fractured and had split. Uh, A king named Jeroboam took 10 of the tribes of Israel, the northern 10 tribes, and split them off from the rightful line of David. And so during the 8th century, uh, the kingdom of Israel is actually divided into two. The northern kingdom uh, is simply called Israel. Their capital is Samaria. And there's a lot of bad things that happen in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is called Judah Their capital is Jerusalem. There's a lot of bad things happening there too, but what they have going for them is at least they have the rightful king. Uh, They've retained the family line of David in the south. But aside from that, there's really not a lot of good things happening in either of those kingdoms. Where we're going to zoom in in the story today, uh, the kingdom in the north is ruled by a guy named Ahab. Uh, Ahab ends up being a pretty famous character in ancient history. In fact, uh, here is a uh, a monolith that was made by an Assyrian king named Shalmaneser III. Shalmaneser III was the king of the Assyrian Empire, which was like a world superpower during the eighth century. They were the ones that were calling all the shots in this entire region. Uh, Shalmaneser uh, made this monolith and wrote down all of the names of the kings that he defeated or that paid him tribute. Uh, and right on this uh, this monolith, which is a really important artifact, uh, we see, among others, the names of Ahab, uh, the king of, of Israel. And so he's a famous king historically. Like We know that he existed apart from the biblical record. Um, but the Bible itself tells us a little bit about Ahab um, but he's famous for kind of some other reasons. Uh, so here's, here's how Ahab is introduced in, in the book of 1 Kings. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So that's a good start, right? Uh, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of the kings of Israel before him. All right, when we think of Ahab, it's important to remember that this guy is ethnically Jewish, right? He shares the same ethnic bloodlines as the great people like David... Uh, and and Solomon, and and these types of people. But uh, he had become so corrupted uh, that he rejected and intentionally pushed away from all of the things of God. And he set up his kingdom to directly oppose the way of God. So much to the point that the scripture records that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of the kings before him. So Israel has a history of having really bad kings, But here's Ahab, the king of the bad kings. He is a bad, bad dude. Uh, The name Jezebel is perhaps a name you're familiar with. This is one of these names that instantly is banned from all child uh, lists. I've never met a Jezebel uh, in my life, or a Rahab for that matter. Um, But Jezebel is up there because she is uh, a priestess of Baal. Uh, She is somebody who... Uh, runs the religious cultic practices of worshiping uh, this god Baal. And so uh, Ahab not only is doing evil on his own, but now he brings this priestess of Baal into the kingdom of Israel, where she begins to essentially bring her religion of Baal worship to these people. And so eventually, under the reign of Ahab, and, and he's not the only one, remember, he's into this long line of evil kings, but in the, in the reign of Ahab, Israel just goes way far off the tracks, completely out of line with the way of God, so much of the fact that they are actively pushing against God. Uh, he builds these altars to Baal, and just things are not good. So here's the culture of Israel heading in this direction. Uh, What God then does is he raises up uh, people to come into that kingdom, into that culture, and to preach against the things that they're doing. Uh, He brings people to enter into the trajectory of the culture and to disrupt it, to try to say, hey, What you're doing is not in line with the way of God. You need to to shape it up. You need to turn around. You need to repent. You need to come back to the way of God. And so he sends these disruptors into this culture uh, with the hope that they will get things back on track. Uh, These are known as the prophets. And so the prophets go and they speak the word of God into a culture that for the most part doesn't want to hear them. Uh, One of the most famous prophets in the history of Israel uh, is a guy named Elijah. You may be familiar with uh, Elijah. Elijah is still today known by the Jewish people as one of the uh, most important figures in their entire religious culture, Uh, and for Christianity as well. Elijah is way far up there as far as the great people of the Bible. So Elijah goes into the culture of Israel at the time when Ahab was pushing Actively away from God, and he confronts and he disrupts them. Probably the most famous story uh, in Elijah's life is when he meets uh, uh, Ahab and and his prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So you may be familiar with the story, uh, but it's here in Exodus, or 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. So Elijah uh, has had enough, he's sick of this. He goes confronts Ahab and says, all right, here's what we're going to do once and for all. uh, We are going to determine which of these gods is real. You seem to think Baal is real. I am certain that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is real. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to have a God battle. (laughs) Each of us will set up an altar and we'll simply pray to our gods. And whichever God answers us and consumes uh, the sacrifice on the altar, that's the real God and, and that's the one who ultimately will be worshipped. So Ahab says, okay, that sounds cool. So uh, he brings his 450 prophets of Baal, and there's 400 prophets of Asherah there as well. And all the people of Israel are gathered around on Mount Carmel. And they build uh, these altars, this this stone altar. They put wood on it, and then they slaughter an ox, and they put the ox, arrange it, on this altar. This is a a very typical way that worship would happen in the ancient Near East. Uh, and and, And Elijah says, all right, you guys win the, to- the coin toss, you can go first. And so uh, Ahab allows the prophets of Baal to get up and they start praying to Baal. You may be familiar with this story. They pray to Baal, they say, Baal, come on, show us, this is your chance to put this Elijah guy in his place, he's a, a troubler of Israel, let's get rid of him once and for all. And so from sunrise to noon, they pray to Baal. And they dance around this altar, and they do all of the things that they can think of to invoke the power of Baal to come and consume this altar. But of course, nothing happens. And one of the best verses in the entire Bible is verse 27. At noon, so they've been doing this for a while, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So Elijah is just like being a total jerk here, but it's awesome. Uh, Just mocking these guys because they're doing everything they can. And so they do. They're like, oh, maybe he's right. Maybe he is out. And so they start yelling louder and they cut themselves until their own blood begins to mix onto this altar. And they're doing everything they can uh, to invoke the power of Baal, but of course, Baal isn't real, <laughs> spoiler alert, uh, so nothing happens. And so Elijah says, all right, let me, let me, let me uh, have a shot here. And so he takes 12 stones, one stone to represent each of the tribes of Israel. Uh, he puts it on, he rebuilds this altar, uh, but then he does something crazy. He says, uh, bring me those four stone jugs over there, those four stone jars, and fill them with water. So people are like, okay. Uh, and they bring these four stone jugs, and they pour them on this altar. Elijah had built a, dug a trench around the altar as well, and they pour this water on the altar. Now, I'm not a Boy Scout, but even I know that if you want to start a fire, this is probably not a good way to go about doing it. Correct, BJ? Correct. Okay, uh, confirmed. But Elijah's not done there. He says, go fill them up again. So the guys go, and they fill up these four stone jugs, And again, they dump them all over uh, the altar. And Elijah says, one more time. (laughs) So three times, uh, three times four, of course, is 12. For 12 stone jars are poured over this altar with the 12 stones representing Israel. And then (laughs) Elijah, in this simple, humble prayer, uh, essentially says to God, God, I want you to consume this thing not because of me, But I want you to do it for yourself in order to show these people how wrong they are and how far away from you they have gone. I've been disrupting this culture on your behalf, and now I want you to prove that you are God. And of course, like that, fire rains down from heaven and not only consumes the sacrifice, but consumes all of the water that has been drenched on top of this altar. Now, in the Sunday School version of this story, uh, when this is done... Uh, Elijah and all the prophets of Baal get down on their knees and he prays and says, I see that hand and all that stuff. Uh, but in the actual biblical story, uh, Elijah proceeds to slaughter all 450 prophets of Baal. I don't know why they don't include that in the flannel graft, uh, but, but it's not there. Uh, but, so this is this really important, really famous story of uh, disruption in Elijah's life, where God makes this unquestionable show of his power uh, and uh, his his protection and his desire for Israel to come to him. But I think for, in order for us to really appreciate what's going on here and really appreciate all that's happening, uh, we need to take a step back and we need to look at the few things that happened right before and a few things that happened right after this event. And so if you have uh, this paper, there's going to be four things that we're going to learn from the story, four lessons about what it means to be a disruptor. Because when we disrupt, when we follow the way of God, uh, sometimes uh, it's not always easy, sometimes it's not always great, but there are things that we can learn from this story that I think we can then bring into our life. So, uh, back, to, back to the text. Let's go before Elijah gets to Carmel. Uh, the setting here is that God has brought a famine upon the whole land. Again, as a way to show his power, uh, he says, no food, no nothing, there's going to be a famine and a drought throughout the land. And so nothing has grown. But eventually, uh, God says to Elijah, all right, now you need to go to Ahab, and you need to tell him that rain is about to come back to the land. So this is after Elijah has already spent time, uh, you may remember, uh, being fed by ravens, which is very sanitary Uh, and doing all of these other miracles. But now God says, all right, go to Ahab and tell him that rain is about to come. So Elijah is on his way uh, to go meet this evil king Ahab. Uh, While he's on his way, he meets a guy named Obadiah. Now this is not the same Obadiah uh, that wrote the book Obadiah, but he plays a really important role. So Obadiah uh, is a member essentially of the king's court. He works within The palace. And this palace is a very evil place to be. It's not the type of culture uh, where a good person would really thrive. But here is Obadiah, who we learn is still faithful to the way of God, living within uh, the culture of of Ahab's palace. Um, What we learn about Obadiah is that he has gone out of his way Uh, to find any of the few people who were still faithful of God, prophets of God, and to hide them uh, in caves and bring them food and water in order to keep them alive so that Jezebel uh, and Ahab wouldn't kill them. Now what we see here, and this is kind of an aside here, uh, Obadiah is also acting as a disruptor. He's not confronting the king. He's not challenging the king to a duel of their gods, but in a very quiet, private way, we still see Obadiah disrupting the culture. It's just in a very different manner. Uh, But anyways, this is who Obadiah is. We can read about him here uh, in in chapter 18. Um, uh, Go to to middle of verse 2. So now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. When Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken about a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valley. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah going in another. So uh, because there's a a drought, and because they... Uh, want to keep some of their animals alive. Their goal is to find some green grass somewhere in the kingdom. So Ahab goes this way, Obadiah goes this way. As Obadiah is traveling, this is where he meets up with Elijah. Uh, so in verse 7, as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him. So Elijah's like rock star status here, right? You just see him and you're like, whoa! Bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes he replied, go and tell your master Elijah is here. Which that sounds like a pretty normal thing to ask, right? Go tell Ahab that Elijah is here. But check out Obadiah's response. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Uh, It turns out that Ahab's been looking for Elijah and that anytime somebody has come to him and said, hey, Elijah's this way, if Elijah wasn't found, these people were killed. And so what Obadiah is assuming here is that he's going to go tell Ahab, hey, Elijah's here. And then when Elijah doesn't actually show up, what happens to Obadiah? (coughs) He's dead. Uh, We've already determined that Ahab is a pretty unstable guy. Uh, He doesn't have any problem doing things that are not in line with the morals and ethics of the way of God. And so it really fits with his character uh, that he would be willing to kill Obadiah and Elijah himself really for no reason at all. So when Elijah tells Obadiah to go to the king (laughs) to be a disruptor in a very upfront way, Uh, in a very real manner, Obadiah is putting his life on the line. He is risking his own existence by doing this. And he doesn't want to, right? His first response is, no, 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 no. What have I done? Why are you making me do this? Uh, So he kind of talks about what he's done. And then uh, down to verse 15, Elijah says, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. So this sounds kind of innocent, and it sounds like it's not that significant of an event. But again, remember, these are real people with real lives and real fears and real desires not to be killed by a crazy king. The fact that Obadiah is willing to present himself to this guy who most likely will kill him, uh, teaches us something about what it means to disrupt. He's willing to do this because what Obadiah realizes is that this thing that he's a part of, challenging this culture for God, is something that's bigger than just himself or just his life. What Obadiah and Elijah both realize is that when they disrupt a culture in the name of God, they are doing something uh, that's about more than just themselves. and So the challenge uh, is something that they're willing to step up to. Putting himself in danger is something he's willing to do because he realizes that it's about more than just him. If I perish, I perish, right? That famous line. Uh, he understands uh, that his life is not the thing that's most important here. But it's about something bigger. He's part uh, of a bigger calling, a bigger revolution, a bigger disruption. And so because of that, he's willing to step up. So with us, if we are called to be disruptors to a culture, uh, we're doing so not for our own gain, but we're doing so and we're willing to put ourselves on the line because it's about something more than just us. And so that's the first thing that we learn. All right, back to the text. Um, When uh, verse seventeen, so Ahab and Elijah meet. Uh, When he saw Elijah, this is Ahab talking. Ahab said to him, "Is that you, Troubler of Israel?" So this is a great line here. That as far as Ahab's concerned, it's Elijah who has brought trouble onto Israel. We know that that's not really what's going on here, right? We know that it's Ahab himself. That has brought all of this. But he thinks that it's Elijah. Verse 18. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baal. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to come meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring me the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So this is where the setup for this big event happens. But now, check this out. In verse 20. They're there on the mountain, and all the people have gathered. So Ahab sent the word to Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people. So these are just the normal people of Israel who have come to watch this spectacle. We have the 850 prophets, but then we just have the normal people of Israel who are there. Check out what Elijah says. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? Or dance is actually the the actual word there. How long will you dance between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. So here is Elijah in a very tangible way confronting the culture. These Israelites who know better, he's confronting them and he's saying, look, you guys have played this game for long enough. Now you need to make your decision. Are you going to follow Baal or are you going to follow God? He's stepping up, he's putting himself on the line, and he's challenging these people to step out of that trajectory and go back into the way of God. But, in verse 21, but the people said nothing. So Elijah challenges these people to stop the direction that they're going, to repent and to come back to the way of God Elijah confronts culture, Elijah disrupts culture, and the culture says nothing. A lot of times we base whether or not we're being successful at something on if people choose to follow us or people don't choose to follow us. If you're being a successful leader, that means people are following you. In this case, we see Elijah disrupting culture. Challenging culture, doing the exact thing that God called him to do, and nobody responds. So in this situation, it's important for us to remember uh, that sometimes when we disrupt, sometimes when we challenge culture, other people aren't going to join us. They're going to still resist. But just because no one follows you, that doesn't mean that you're wrong. Your success as someone who disrupts culture, is not necessarily based on the fact that people are responding or not. Uh, If, in fact, you are following the way of God, as Elijah is, uh, his journey here is successful. His disruption is successful because it's not based on whether or not people respond. It's It's based on whether or not you're truly following God. So the people said nothing. So, uh, here's the Mount Carmel incident. They slice up the goat, or the ox. Uh, they call down the fire from heaven. Baal doesn't answer, and so Elijah prays, and God consumes, consumes the whole thing. Now, uh, chapter 19. After this is over, things start to get a little hairy for Elijah himself. So, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel, remember his wife, the priestess of Baal, she's not a good person. Uh, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, listen to this, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. One of them being the prophets of Baal that he just slaughtered on Mount Carmel. In other words, Jezebel is saying, I'm going to hunt you down, and I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And if I don't kill you, uh, I'm going to be cursed if I do. And so I'm going to make it my priority and my goal to take you out. This is not a good good thing for Elijah. And so, in verse 3, Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush which is I don't know what that is but seems like it should be very clean went to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed listen to this and prayed that he might die I have had enough lord he said take my life I know I'm no better than my ancestors then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep so quite literally <laughs> Elijah in the span of less than a day goes from a mountaintop literally but this figurative mountaintop of fighting for the lord and he is this hero of god and he is disrupting culture and he is challenging the way and he is make, putting an end to baal worship and everything is going right for elijah but now a day later he's alone he's in the wilderness He's emotionally exhausted. He's spiritually exhausted. He's physically exhausted to the point where he now is ready for God to just end his life. He's gone from here to here in less than a day. If this tells you that Elijah was taking his calling seriously, if this doesn't tell you Elijah is taking his calling seriously, I don't know what it was, uh, this was a big deal to him and it's exhausted him to the point where he's just ready to be done. But as we go through this text, uh, an angel appears to him. He gives him some food and he, he tells him uh, to travel to the mountain of God, travel to Mount Horeb. So let's jump down here, uh, verse middle of verse nine. He's on Mount Horeb, uh, which is the mountain of God, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And says, verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophet to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So what is Elijah's answer here when God says, Elijah, what's going on? (laughs) What are you doing here? What's happening in your life right now? Elijah says, look, God... (laughs) I've given you everything. I've put my life on the line. I've stood up to this evil way of of this evil king. I've stood up to this culture. I've done everything that you've asked me to do, and I'm the only one doing it. Now, is that true? We've just met a guy named Obadiah, and Obadiah tells us that there are a hundred other prophets that are still in the land, prophets of God. Obadiah himself is standing up to Ahab, but Elijah looks at his situation and kind of focuses in on him and where he is. And for Elijah, this act of disrupting, this life that he's been called to disrupt culture, to stand in the face of culture, is one that makes him feel like he's doing it all alone. So, even though he's not, even though there are other people, uh, he feels alone, like he's doing this, like he's standing on an island, the only one who's remaining faithful to God. And I think the reality is uh, that that is something that happens. When you do something that is against the grain of culture, when you stand up for a way of God that is against the way of the world, you often find yourself feeling like you're the only one doing it. Even though it may not be true, uh, it often feels like that's your reality. And so for Elijah, we see uh, this very vulnerable moment in which he cries out to God and says, I am all alone. I'm doing this by myself. And as much as we want to maybe criticize Elijah here and say, hey, dude, you're not alone. Stop you know, crying about it. Put on your big boy pants. This is his reality. <laughs> He's just been through a lot. And this is, this is true. It sometimes feels like you're, like you're alone. And so back to the text here. Uh, verse 11. The Lord says, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, this is a really powerful Uh, event, not only in Elijah's life, but in the history and in the narrative of Scripture, what's coming up here. So a great, powerful wind then tore through the mountain, tore the mountain apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So God tells Elijah, go stand on the mountain and I'm going to appear to you. And we see this, this huge wind, we see this earthquake, we see this fire. These really supernatural events that, come on, this is how God talks, right? God shows himself in natural disasters. God shows himself in these big, loud things because God is a big, loud, powerful God. And so this is what Elijah is expecting. But in all three of those things, that's not how God communicates. That's not how God speaks to Elijah. Because in verse 12... And after the fire came a gentle whisper. His expectation is that God was going to talk in the big and the powerful and the mighty. But instead, God talks in the quiet, simple, gentle whisper. And he says, uh, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. The voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) Elijah repeats this thing. God says, go back. go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, uh, you will anoint Hazel, king of Aram. And he goes on uh, to tell him what to do. But I think what's important here is not necessarily uh, exactly what Elijah is told by God, (laughs) but the fact that Elijah, standing on this mountain, feeling utterly alone, exhausted, depressed, at the end of his life, or what he wishes was the end of his life, saying, God, I am the only one here. But the reality is, he's not alone. Because God is with him. Elijah is standing up for God. Elijah is disrupting for the way of God. Elijah is challenging the culture to say, this is not a path that you should be on. Doing that makes you often feel alone, just like Elijah. But when you are standing for God, you truly are not alone. God's presence was with Elijah in a very powerful, evident, invisible way. So even, there, even though there may be this loneliness, uh, the reality is in some spiritual, mysterious, yet absolutely real way, God's presence was still among him. So as we said last week, um, when we look at some of these great heroes of the Bible, we see them... uh, standing up to culture in a way that's like on the mountaintop, or literally, again, for Elijah. But we see, like, Paul standing up in these cities and going to the marketplace and with loud voices shouting and challenging culture. And for many of us, we say, I don't want to do that ever. (laughs) And that's okay, because we're not Elijah. You're not Paul. You're not Peter. You're not these guys. But, uh, as again we said last week, there are small humble, quiet ways in which you can still stand as a disruptor to culture. It's in the ways that you teach your children. It's in the things that you do in order to be a faithful uh, spouse. It's in the things that you do to be an honest co-worker or boss. It's in the things that you do to make sure that you're using your money in a way that you can support those who are in need It's in the way that you stand up for justice and truth and righteousness and reject racism, reject uh, hypocrisy, reject the things that say people should be judged based on their skin color or their social status or any of those sort of things. When you stand for the way of God, whether it's loud or quiet, you're a disruptor, you're disrupting. And it's something that we as followers of God are called to do. And when we do that, we're going to soon realize that it's not easy. It's not always necessarily fun. Sometimes we may find ourselves under the broom bush saying, God, I'm done with this. When we look at someone like Elijah, we can learn what it means to be a disruptor. We can learn lessons that we can then take and bring into our lives, however big or small we find ourselves at. As we continue on this study next week, uh, we're going to look at the original disruption, the disruption of sin, uh, the thing that began this whole process and started pushing us to the place where we are today. Uh, we're going to be challenged by what that means and how that still kind of connects with us today. Uh, but as we look back at the Scriptures, we're looking back onto stories of disruption. We're looking back onto people who were willing to say, this is about more than just me. This is about more than just my safety or my reputation. This is about more than how I feel at this particular moment. And I'm willing to stand up for the way of God. I'm willing to stand up for justice and truth and righteousness and hope. I'm willing to stand up for the things of the gospel. I'm willing to stand up for the things of God because it's about more than just me. When you do that, you may be lonely. May be exhausting, may be hard, but the reality is that we as a community are doing this together. And on top of that, that in a very real way, our God is present in our disruption. Your God is present in your disruption. Your God is with you, even though you may feel like you're the only one doing it. And so this week, uh, what is one way in which you can step into that reality which is one way what is one way that you can challenge a culture uh, that says this when you know the way of God says this what is one way that you can stand up and say this is not right and in a quiet small humble way or in a loud soapbox uh, extreme way, can you stand up and say, I'm going to disrupt because it's about something more than me, and I'm doing it because my God is with me. Let's pray. God, as we continue to reflect on your scriptures, uh, we're continually reminded that sometimes uh, your way uh, is challenging. Sometimes your way is hard. Sometimes your way is inconvenient. But God, help us to be people who are faithful to you and faithful to the calling that you have given us. Help us to be people who understand that the gospel isn't just about us saying a prayer and going to heaven when we die, but it's about us stepping into a life that radically transforms everything that we do and can ultimately transform this world that we live in. God, it's our prayer that we are faithful to this gospel and it's our prayer that we are faithful to you. Remind us of your presence among us. Remind us of the presence of your church, of this local community, and the community of of the body of Christ as we stand together for your way. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.